Well, happy 2018, you guys. Uh, sorry for the brief intermission, but we're back and rolling with episode eight of the Strength Ratio podcast. Uh, Zachary Greenwald here, joined alongside, as always, with Kyle Klachenko and Eric Sobolisky, not in person, but on the other line. And to start off 2018, we're taking our latest two topics. Uh, that is before our conversation with our athletes who are in town uh, from both Canada and Europe to wrap up our conversation about concurrent training and the training variables uh, inherent to that program. Uh, we're going to start off by talking about a traditional periodized plan, uh, its effectiveness, what we might know now, relative to what we used to know or what we even thought we knew was correct in the recent past. And then we're going to kind of tie it all together with what might be best for your training. Uh, but just to kick it off, we're going to go over um, how a periodized plan would be implemented, what its phases are and what those characteristics look like per each phase, uh, what exercise selection might look like based on uh, the athlete's sport. And we can break it down into uh, – uh, uh, this would be, of course, specific to strength uh, because we are not yet talking about the training variables of cardiovascular adaptations. Uh, but for a CrossFitter or for a weightlifter or powerlifter, um, how we would break down the periodized phases uh, – pertaining, again, specifically to strength and what we do personally with our athletes and how that differs and why. Uh, so without further ado, let's let uh, Sobo just reintroduce, though we've mentioned this before, where periodization came from uh, and why it began. So periodization is uh, idea philosophy that has been tried and proven but it's it's primarily adopted from the the old soviet block and if you get into the literature at all a lot of the old literature is written in in russian and uh primarily geared toward olympic sports as for the most part of the world that is the biggest uh venue and outlet for sports performance in the world so mainly geared toward four-year cycles or cycles that have one year uh, competition peaks, so like a world championships or a, a national championship, as far as like a, a lifting or a world track and field. Um, so it's all geared toward how we build toward a certain event, either every four years or every year, so that they can perform at their best at that given time. So it's actually a really good model. Um, most Olympic coaches still use this model to peak for world championships every year or every four years, an Olympic championship. So it all kind of just depends on where you're coming from. But that's where it came from is to peak for the Olympics. And in the case of the you know Eastern Europeans, that was weightlifting and swimming and kind of the, the sports that you could really um, play around with volume and load throughout a season or throughout a year and come up with the best combination of the two. Uh, and a little interesting aside is uh, Greg Knuckles, who recently talked to us in some of his periodization articles, is that um, 
he kind of links, especially from the Soviet bloc, it to their governmental uh, program where they did a lot of long-term planning. I can't remember the exact name of what the Soviets called it, but basically they had like the five-year plan or something like that. And uh, that's where he thinks that a lot of it, like the idea for it originally started. So that's, that's kind of a, a different aside that it wasn't technically directly from the sports scientists, but just started from the general Soviet um, idea of long-term planning. Cool. Yep. And there's a, there's a topic too. A lot of people talk about, it's called LTAD um, long-term athlete development. Um, it kind of stems from the, the Soviets general physical preparation, um, the GPP that they did. So it's all, this stuff has been around for an high level research. I mean, I'd go back, to the fifties and sixties. Yeah. It's very old. Mm-hmm. And well, if, you're, if you're out there and you're listening and you were born in the fifties and sixties, you're not old. So <laughs> <laughs> um, Kyle is only 23, but wise beyond his years. Um, but we uh, will start off with what Sobo mentioned, just breaking this down physically. And if you've followed our content before, you've heard me lay this out. Uh, that is the order of this, this block. Sobo mentioned general physical preparedness so that if a, a Russian weightlifter or uh, other athlete of an Olympic sport were to wrap up with the Olympics, that first year after the Olympics is usually one in which the top dogs might not be competing or peaked at their highest level just because it's the first year of the, the next quadrennial. So even for those who are gearing up with the long-term goal, even if it's not the top dogs in the sport, they're going through a phase of training that is more general. So as to say that exercise selection is not as specific to the needs of the sport or specifically to the needs of uh, competition, how the exercises or events are performed and under uh, the specific environment or atmosphere in which they're performed. Instead, you're kind of opening that umbrella up to much more in terms of exercise selection, uh, loading, volumes. It is least specific to that of competition. You're, you're kind of starting to develop this basic fitness qualities across different domains as, a, as opposed to one that's specific to the sport. Yeah, which we advocate for the majority of our general population folks who are listening it's a very good way to train. And of course, as at least the majority of the time. majority of the time, but uh, uh, unless or until specific goals come up, mm-hmm. you can, you can keep it quite general, but we're just wanting to go into the nature uh, of which this model was created because it was created for those with specific goals um, and who were for all intents and purposes, professional athletes. But you have this general preparation that then leads into something more specific often uh, leading up then to some type of uh, competition prep that could involve an overreaching phase before what we'd call a taper, uh, which is a form of a deload, if you're more familiar with the term deload. And then, of course, you have your your competition. Um, And we tend to see, and in these Russian models, that these phases emphasize different uh, fitness characteristics that we've spoken about. So in our latest podcast on concurrent training about strength, we spoke about uh, absolute strength, relative strength, uh, and power. And these 
aspects of these fitness characteristics would be highlighted uh, more or less at different phases of a periodized plane. So if we consider a weightlifter, that weightlifter would have, because weightlifting requires uh, a lot of power and strength, absolute strength, that you would see those fitness characteristics trained perhaps most uh, towards the end of that training year leading up to world championships per year uh, and then peaked even more so for that athlete to hit their best records, potentially even lifetime records in the fourth quadrennial, which would basically be the Olympics. Um, do you want to add to that, you guys, at all, if there's anything that I missed? Yeah, uh, yeah I was just going to kind of match the cycles up. So general prep is usually seen where strength endurance or hypertrophy training, you might make some body composition changes. Uh, the specific prep becomes more strength, strength, power. Uh, uh, pre-competition prep would be more, more power-based. And then obviously competition, you're going to be doing basically just the uh, whatever your sport entails leading mm-hmm. up to it. Um, if it's a, a strength sport, you'll be lifting at very high intensities. So that's the other kind of uh, general thing that you would follow across a year is in the uh, general prep, follow the highest volume goes down throughout the year, intensity rises, uh, peaking at competition. And an important thing to understand is because this is for professional athletes who have, at least it was designed, uh, for those who have a goal of excelling, and really for these countries, not just excelling, but uh, hopefully winning uh, Olympic medals, it was to, of course, optimize results. In order to optimize results, you have to uh, optimize different fitness characteristics before you move on to others. So you would look to, well, in the case of a GPP block, you wouldn't really be optimizing any. You're allowing the body to uh, become as physically fit and balanced as able. You are not optimizing hypertrophy. You're not optimizing strength or power. But when you get into these phases of hypertrophy followed by strength, followed by power, you do them in distinct blocks because you are not trying to... uh, raise one fitness characteristic um, or rather you are trying to raise one fitness characteristic to its best ability before you are the other because one improves the other or rather that which is uh, first improves that which is next. So if an athlete is in a hypertrophy phase, it means next to nothing unless they're really in some type of food surplus. They're not training at their competition body weight. And as long as they're putting on muscle mass, that would then lead them into a more successful strength block. Uh, There are more neurological adaptations to that strength block where they might even start slowly cutting down towards their competition weight, but adding on the strength that they need to be the strongest that they need to be for competition. And the power is kind of like the icing on the cake. Uh, in many Olympic sports, um, that is, just because you can only perform it with such high intensity and the volume must be so low, uh, very uh, characteristic of what a taper would look like for a competition, so that we have these variables trained one piece at a time. But the context is for, at least in its inception, the Olympics for professional athletes. Yeah. Yeah, and I was I was just going to say Zach was talking about um, kind of the general prep and the strength, and the general prep developing 
uh, just like across the spectrum of fitness qualities. It just also can be seen as a work capacity block so that you can handle the intensities of the strength, strength power blocks, and so on. Um, you have to take some time to recover, like the tendons and ligaments uh, feel a little bit better before you can go back into super high specificity. The other thing there is that mainly specifically for strength sports, or uh, if you did use um, something like this for endurance sports, uh, each kind of quality maintains another quality to some extent. So uh, hypertrophy, if you're doing a lot of hypertrophy training, your strength is not going to like all of a sudden drop off by 50%. Strength training somewhat uh, uh, almost indefinitely maintains hypertrophy, but also starts working on power uh, and then so on and so on. They each kind of help each other. Um, so, but one thing I wanted to ask you is if you could go into kind of more of the physiological reasonings behind this. Basically, I mean, in a, in a nutshell, because that's that's a whole lot of physiology to talk about. <laughs> just come, um, yeah, just just a just a, just a yeah, one sentence. Yeah, so basically, the characteristics that are affected by each significant load placed on the body, whether it's hypertrophy or strength, is going to elicit a different change, either neuromuscular, structurally. Um, more sarcomeres, um, bigger sarcomeres, um, different neurological adaptations with firing rate and firing frequency and summation of forces. So all that plays a role. So if you're thinking about, let's just look at hypertrophy, a lot of hypertrophy work says that you need to do a lot of volume and really stress the cells out um, over time with volume to cause damage or um, some type of strain to the cell, and then the cell in turn accommodates that stress put on it, that muscle cells in particular. It then causes more um, sarcomeres to grow inside the cell, making the cell stronger. So when you put that same load on it before, it withstands that load even more. So when you put a load on the body, it's going to adapt. Well, if you are looking for a specific adaptation, you are going to load the body so that the body responds. So if, if you think your body can only respond in so many ways, so if you put high volume and then a high stress with a high weight, it's going to try to remodel with sarcomeres. With sarcomeres and getting larger muscles is a different adaptation than if you were going to place heavy loads because heavy loads is more connective tissue and the structural components. So you it's kind of a, a give and take yes you can do both together but you know in a strength sport or weightlifting the size isn't as as vital as the strength so why are we going to waste our time and our energy making our muscles bigger when we strictly need to make them stronger so it's kind of a, uh, an idea that you can't do everything with the adaptation you can do it a little bit um, so if you're looking at a neurological adaptation, those are fairly easy to do and fairly quick, but then the structural components that make you stronger and let you withstand the load take time. And if you're putting a lot of stress on your body doing, you know, looking at trying to get a heavy load, um, doing, you know, 90% plus your body's going to remodel a certain way. And then you go and all of a sudden you flip it and do a lot of volume. Your body's going to kind of be like, what are we supposed to do here? So when you try to optimize it, you don't want to have the the body trying to do multiple things at one time you want to focus on a specific task and increase that task 
So that's kind of like in a nutshell what your body's going through. And while this uh, form of planning um, might have been used for Olympic athletes, planning in general with uh, or, or a plan that includes these characteristics uh, does not have to look exactly like this. There are other types of plans. Uh, so Sobo, if you can just speak a little bit about perhaps your introduction to this model, maybe how you used it, if you used it at all in your training, and how it differs from how you would train a group of athletes perhaps outside of the Olympic realm or in field sports as you experienced on the strength and conditioning side of things. So with so thing about periodization and looking at that is the models are there in all sports. It's how you go about it. So you have to understand that, especially in team sports or field sports or court sports, however you want to define them, your, your model is a little bit more broad because football, basketball, tennis, soccer, they all require strength, speed, agility, power, endurance. So they require all of them, but you have to understand that as you program and plan for a season, do some of them drop out more or less than the others? Like we haven't really talked about cardiovascular and, and, and so-called cardio work, but that's actually harder to build up, but easier to maintain. While strength is fairly easy to see jumps in strength, but it's really hard to maintain strength. So if you quit working out, you're going to see a drop in strength. And you have to maintain either a pretty high level, you know, the research says about 70% of your 1RM to maintain or improve strength. So that's pretty pretty difficult task to do consistently. Or if you drop down to a lighter load, like, oh, I'm going to go a maintenance phase. I'm only going to do 60%. Well, that's actually not maintenance at all. You're actually not doing enough stimulation to the muscle to actually cause growth or, or um, maintenance. So when you plan for sports – team sports in particular, not um, individual sports, you can look at what is the, the key thing we need during season. So if I'm dealing with a football player and specifically, say, an offensive lineman, I need them to be strong the majority of the season. So strength could be an emphasis almost the whole season. So college football now, the seasons are like 16 weeks long. Um, NFL can be up to 20 weeks, depending on if you go to the Super Bowl. So you have to say, okay, we cannot – just maintain anymore we can't do inside the the 16 week season i can't do a strength block um, a power block a recovery block i have to figure out how i can merge all those together in one big block well out of season with that you can you can, it looks more like a traditional model as soon as football season's over as soon as basketball season's over you have that recovery that general physical preparation get them back normal and then through the off season you can do a a really good um, strength training, get them very powerful. Um, right before a season starts, you probably want them in, you know, in pretty good physical shape. Probably they're going to be close to the strongest you'll see all season. And then over the course of the season, the goal is to see marginal gains, but try to elevate all of them at the same time. So team sports, it's really true concurrent training. Um, sports that aren't as physically demanding across a, uh, a breadth of, of values, um, then you can focus more like swimming. 
almost pure cardio. You can focus on that. Same thing with rowing and cycling and running. But football, basketball, tennis, soccer, those sports, the planning becomes a whole lot more difficult because you have to understand the complexity of each sport. So for weightlifting, for CrossFit, actually the programming is, in my ideas, a little easier because you have a true concrete outcome measurable that you can look at. In terms of the, the, the fitness qualities that you're developing, right? Yeah. You, you know, like, you know, CrossFit, you're not going to have to, you know, play four quarters and, and, you know, block and catch and run. You don't have to develop. And, and, and the mental side of that too is not in it. So CrossFit, can I lift heavy weights? Can I do it for a long period of time? Can I do it in a, in a, a different kind of realm each time? If you can do that, then you're good. I mean, CrossFit is kind of, you know, stuck in the domain that it's in. They can't, you know, they're not going to do the old softball tops they did back in the first couple of CrossFit games where Rich destroyed everybody. Mm-hmm. They're going to kind of get away from that. So it's not like the domains may seem like they're large, but they all kind of have the same underlying thing. Can I be strong and can I be strong for a long period of time? So hopefully in listening to what we've mentioned and, and in podcasts prior or our own episodes prior, you might be able to take a more educated uh, look behind the context of your own programming when you receive it from your coach. So if you do receive something that mirrors uh, or may even look exactly like what we're describing with a, a periodized plan, know that it can work and likely will. Though, is that appropriate for what your goals are and what you've mentioned to your coach uh, based on some things inherent to those structures? Meaning, the overloading of each individual fitness characteristic before the deload and potentiation to the next plan can be quite intensive uh, and exhausting because you are optimizing that one quality you are not trying to incrementally bring up these qualities together and if you recall from uh, perhaps two uh, or three shows ago we kind of weigh the actual gains made by bringing them up slowly but incrementally versus all of them together what is the difference between optimizing results realistically versus doing it concurrently, perhaps not as big as you think. So if you find that you're getting burnt out and you don't have a specific goal by always doing the same rep schemes over and over and over again for two or three months before it switches up, you might just want to have a talk with your coach and say that your goals are more general, that you'd like to see more variety and keep it engaged and fun. Whereas in any of our athletes, specifically those who are in weightlifting or powerlifting, They might say that with a specific goal, there are some phases of training that are more mentally challenging than others, Um, just in its repetitive nature when you're looking to optimize one characteristic before the other. So in this, we don't just want to educate you about the why uh, behind each program, but also just again and forevermore, have you aware of what your own goals are so you can see if your programming is really what you need or if it's a template that might be best served for someone else 
And speaking along those lines too, with um, a program, and I've I've dealt with quite a few Olympic lifters. Actually, one of them just did really well at uh, was it where were you Anaheim for the Worlds or was that was that uh, that was that was Anaheim. Yeah, Anaheim. So he he actually lifted there, and he I think he took second. And <laughs> why did <laughs> this talk? Um, and so. When is, I saw, can I go by that question? <laughs> huh? Can you, can yeah, you I say who? who, who you, or can, are you at liberty to say who it was? Well, I, I mean, I don't, I don't work with him directly anymore, but I did work with him for a while, so I don't even actually know. I think he's with Cal Strength now. Oh, okay. So I'm not gonna. I don't want to get anybody mad at me. Okay, no, that's good. But he, when I knew him, he was not working with Cal Strength, but I think he's actually on Cal Strength's team now. Okay, cool. Cool. Um, but when I, when I first started working with them, um, three years ago, he, he was on a huge kind of, uh, Bulgarian method where he was going heavy, like almost every day and he was working for him. Right. So he was a very young lifter and he was very pliable, I guess you could say. And he was seeing really good gains. And so I, you know, just what Zach was saying before was, there is an optimal way to do it. And when you are trying to improve, there are, you know, the Bulgarian method works. So if you're trying to get gains and you're trying to get strength, a lot of coaches will use a method that's proven with high volume or high load, and you will adapt and you will get stronger. And honestly, I look at that and say that there's nothing wrong with that. But you, as a person and as an athlete, you have to say, can I maintain this for a substantial amount of time? So I think where we differ in our training is, yeah, we could throw you a cookie cutter 531 or Bulgarian method, and we can get you strong real quick, and you can PR in six weeks and feel great about yourself. But if you keep doing that Bulgarian method for the next four years, you are going to stall out physically, mentally. You're going to be beat down, and then you're going to hate weightlifting. You're going to hate fitness. You're going to hate your life, and then you're going to give up weightlifting altogether and be done with it. Well, uh, uh, first, I don't think anyone could do Bulgarian for four years without some uh, special sports supplements on the side. <laughs> um, what are you doing that, so? Oh. You there? Yeah, you guys. Are you there? Yeah. <laughs> Technical difficulties. Um, I, I just said that I don't think that uh, anyone could do Bulgarian for four years without some uh, special sports supplements on the side. Uh, yeah. Most, most <laughs> uh, one thing I was going to – this is also from uh, – we'll get more into the specifics of, of uh, periodized pain here in a second. But one thing that Greg found in his uh, uh, most recent – he basically took all of the literature around periodization – and he just came out with this maybe a week ago. Uh, it was like over 60 studies, meta-analysis, all that kind of stuff. And he found that in, in untrained lifters, and this would make a lot of sense, linear versus undulating periodization or just periodization in general didn't make that much of a difference. And that makes sense in terms of just beginner gains. They can kind of do whatever uh, and still progress. Uh, and then in uh, linear versus undulating in trained lifters, though, uh, undulating, um, I think it was, I want to say like 23% or 
better or something like that. And he did a lot of uh, uh, statistic uh, analysis that I couldn't even begin to explain. Uh, basically, he just took all these different uh, models of periodization, so undulating, linear, uh, uh, daily undulating, weekly undulating, which are really all kind of the same thing because a true plan will have all those somewhat mixed together. It's just that they are sometimes talked about separately. Um, and yeah, he compared them versus untrained and trained. And that's just kind of, kind of some of the things that he found was that as the more advanced you get, you do need to have more of these like uh, ebbs and flows and volume and intensity over time and things like that. And, and do you think mainly because of fatigue management? Yeah. Because you're capable of expressing your strength or your hypertrophy to its, its best capability? Um, yeah. I mean, that, that would make sense to me in terms of uh, like more trained lifter has to be able to like, they're not going to recover as fast because either the, the load that they're using is a lot heavier or they're doing you know, just more volume on a single day. Mm-hmm. And so the next day has to just be a little bit lighter. Um, yeah, I think that like, that would definitely make a lot or of sense. Or their technique is so good that like, they're really using the muscles that they ought to be using. So they need yeah. rest. And your body just needs something different to adapt. And, right? and just somehow getting, it's like when we talk about accessory exercises, if you find an accessory exercise, it might help in the first like week or two that you run through it. But yeah. After that, there's no one magical accessory exercise that's just going to keep showing you consistent gains. It's kind of like a one and done type thing. There's some that are really good for your health and health maintenance, but when you see something transfer to a, a major compound lift, it, it, it's kind of like a one shot cannon. You will eventually have to mix it up in some way yeah. to, to keep progressing. Uh, but that that goes into more of the, these advanced uh, fitness characteristics and uh, specific training modalities. Um, I have a question for you, Sobo, because not long ago were Kyle and Becca and I programming kind of almost exclusively under this traditional model. Well, I I would say that we still, I mean, just like Kyle, Kyle, what Sobo is saying, like you still follow it to to a very large extent. It's mm -hmm. just, um, it's not as narrow in terms of the classical model. That makes sense. Uh, uh, For sure. Um, But, um, my question is, so we all met up for lunch and you had begun to not just really talk about concurrent training. Well, I guess it was, but it was kind of finding a, and this is a model that we try to work off of now, but finding a plan for that, which is concurrently training multiple fitness characteristics, um, it's not CrossFit in that it's randomized. There is a plan, but you're training multiple aspects all at the same time. What what was your like aha moment or what kind of first led you? Was it literature that you saw coming out from, from the science world? Was it just kind of like a, a summation of all of your experiences that, that led you to kind of think a little bit differently as for how someone could make this plan a little bit more inclusive to multiple characteristics at once? Uh oh, did we lose him again? So, okay, I'm back. I'm back. All right. So, <laughs> coming from the college training conditioning world, um, it's a little different. I mean, I've worked with weightlifters and CrossFitters, but in college sports, in all sports, we follow the periodization model 
but as coaches, we understand, and you, I mean, you can probably talk to the majority of coaches that we have very little time with the athletes. I mean, either NCAA compliance ways, or when you get in season, you know, you're not going to spend your 20 hours during a football season lifting weights for 20 hours a week. So it's kind of this idea, and I'm I'm kind of you know been mentored by multiple different coaches under kind of different thought processes. But one that really kind of um, stuck out to me um, is Joe Ken, who's a strength coach for the Carolina Panthers. He has what he calls the tier system, where he he gives exercises tiers on 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 the taxation of the body and kind of in general, like what's going to give the the most highest load, highest risk. You do first, and then you know, kind of puts them into like a risk reward ratio kind of of tier. And you have a couple of tiers and, you know, your big lifts are in the, you know, tier one. And you always do a tier one lift, a tier two lift, a tier three, a tier four, and you can kind of mix it up. But with that, the tier ones are traditionally, you know, have a periodization, but then the, you know, sometimes the tiers three and tier four really don't. And you say, oh, you know, why are we doing, we did you know, heavy squats and we're doing singles of squats, but then our tier three exercise are lat pull downs and we're doing sets of 15, you know, and his, his idea was, you know, lats, you know, have a whole different meaning in football than, you know, we don't need, you know, a one RM on a lat pull down is not going to tell you much. So this whole idea that you can train the body separately and do have different results based on where you are in the season. So, you know, one of my first things when I met him was he said that um, this is back when he was at Arizona State that they had guys PRing on their squats in week nine or ten of a season during that like, like that grind session where everybody's beat up. You know, like how are you doing this? And he was like, you know, we we do a a, a whole mini kind of like a, a a mini cycle of periodization throughout the season. So you you know instead of saying we're going to do eight weeks of strength and eight weeks of power. You do two weeks of power, two weeks of strength, and basically you're going to peak multiple times during the season, or you're going to slowly kind of mix and match as you progress through. So as a strength coaches, we've kind of figured out that we can't just be really strong at one period of time. So how do we do that? And so many coaches from many different genres, you know, basketball, football, their school of thought, have different ways to do this. And so we've all kind of used the periodization model as a basis of how we train, but then we've stepped back and said, how do we really apply this to our sport? Because we don't, you know, in, in team sports, you compete, you know, football 12 times a year. If you're lucky, you play a little bit more. Basketball, you're playing 32 plus games. Baseball, you're playing 60 games in college, you know, so it, you can't just peak once. I mean, when do you peak? Oh, we're going to peak for the NCAA tournament in March. Well, if you went zero oh, in thirty-two, you know, November through May or through March, you're not playing in you know March Madness. So, you it, that model has kind of shifted to the team sports model, which is really like a concurrent model, which you know we see in, in most sports. And, and, and so a lot of a lot of players out there. That is that. It's a really bad. It's a really bad. Why is that so applicable to them as well? to crossfitters like more of this concurrent model why would a classic periodized model not uh be a smart choice or so not smart but potentially not the best so i mean if if your goal is to peak for the open 
the open is not one weekend in March, right? It's multiple weekends over a month and a half. So if you peak once, then you do really good on one event and you stink at all the others. But plus the event, the, the open workouts are not just do a one RM clean, right? There's a whole lot more that goes into it. So in order to try peaking for something like the open, you have to maximize every aspect of fitness for those weeks, which is pretty much impossible. So when do you, when do you maximize your strength? And I know some, some CrossFit coaches out there are probably like you can periodize for the period, periodize for this by, you know, hitting strength. And then I know a lot of people this time of year start to do more endurance so they can get ready for all some of those, you know, AMRAPs they do. But if you can maintain that same level of fitness and slowly get better over the course of the year, so you're not blasting yourself with double unders in January and February before the open starts or high volume stuff, you've done a little bit of high volume. You've done a lot of high um, weight, high stress stuff. So your body's used to basically everything. So you, you're training all aspects concurrently, but yet not totally trying to maximize one which would ideally set you up for you know you know the open and then hopefully the regionals and then the games because you're talking it starts in what late february this year yeah yeah so late february and the games aren't till late july Mm -hmm. yeah i mean unless you're going to do like a, a four periodization model where you're peaking four times or three times you're peaking in february and march and then peaking again in you know may and june and then peaking again in late july i mean in order to do that that takes a lot of planning which i would say is outside the scope of most box owners and gym owners and the time it would take to do that would be obscene amount of time and most people don't have that kind of time and recovery to have three different tapers three different peaks you know and still be able to perform in multiple domains at the same time. I think uh, one point that would be good to get across, you guys can stop me if uh, I'm wrong here, but it's not that you're in the concurrent plan, you're overloading each fitness characteristic at the same time. There's still an emphasis, a de-emphasis that may look something like a classical periodization plan where you have this more work capacity, uh, general fitness preparation block, uh, but that would still have some qualities of the power and the strength. And then over time, you may, uh, towards the open, you are maybe getting a little bit more specific in the training. Uh, you may be emphasizing a little bit more strength or a little bit more um, you know, aerobic power type training in terms of the AMRAPs and stuff. So it's not that you're all year working on everything as much as you can at the same time. There's still an emphasis, the emphasis that looks similar to maybe a classical periodization. Is it, did I say that correctly? Yeah. So, so think none of those domains ever go away, but they don't, they, but they take turns being the focus. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And you know what, what we've seen a lot in our experience with CrossFit athletes, especially those who are competitive is that, you know, they, they, they'll do competitions throughout the year. Um, they train through those, uh, but then they have the open, for which they just crank it up like big time. You're testing multiple former open wads 
yeah, per they, week. They go from like one high intensity or like three to like six high intensity. Yeah. So <laughs> well, what we've seen uh, quite often are just these athletes getting very sick, like mm-hmm. physically sick. Um, there might be injuries. Uh, injuries. And you haven't even gone to the event. So the thought might be at first for the CrossFitter who's used to doing that. Well, I don't feel uh, kind of like open ready. Well, you know, relative to what they had done before, which based on the programs I've seen was kind of like doing the open for two weeks before the open actually starts, maybe two to four weeks, is that you just know that you have to prioritize the cardiovascular system. You kind of know what the format's going to look like. Maintain the strength that you've built. And you maintain the strength that you've built, but you don't want to just start killing yourself. Because while the open hurts, those workouts hurt. Those aren't workouts that you just kind of want to throw in your program every now and again um, when you're out of season, so to speak, because you know they hurt, uh, especially bad. It's... um, it becomes so important to have the needs analysis, ramp things up steadily, and make sure you go into it feeling good. Because it's a and it, that's a, it's a grueling time. It's a stressful time, or it can be a stressful time, especially if athletes are doing these workouts more than once. And if you're training leading up, if if the two to three months leading up to the open was just as stressful. You just won't be able to hold on. And we've been seeing that uh, quite often. But for our own athletes, we just make sure that if we're prioritizing cardio, then the Metcon and what would be specific towards what we've seen in the open in the past is featured with gradually more frequency. We don't just double up on volume. Yeah, you, when you when you decide to do the old benchmark wads right before the open to see where you are, you think you got you got to recover from that. So if you're going to go do 16.4 again and 2 weeks before the open, you just did, you know, an extra week of the open before the open even started. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and uh something uh I actually told one of my athletes the other day uh and especially in terms this is more a cardiovascular metcon is that if you took a strength training example, like you wouldn't do a 5 by 10 back squats 3 days in a row, right? It's like if I said that, you would think to yourself, well, that doesn't make sense. Why would you do, you know, three uh, open Metcons in a row uh, or even like maybe within the same week if you haven't been doing that? Like that's just people think sometimes I think there's a disassociation between uh, cardio or cardiovascular training and like strength training. Like where strength training, maybe it's more visible to where, oh, yeah, that wouldn't make sense. I'm definitely not going to recover where – they see maybe uh, uh, cardiovascular training because the workout itself looks different because of how different metcons can be, or how how, how many variables with in terms of exercises you're working. With. Yeah, yeah, like you could be doing thrusters and pull ups, only rowing, something like that. Still going to be the still, crap out Yeah, of you. it's still stressing the same energy system, and that system needs time to recover. Mm-hmm. And not to say that you can't undulate it in a smart way yeah. that does involve some aspects of overload. Yeah, but you just can't do the open before the open comes around, because I or even just through. I mean, we're doing specific to the open here, but even just like throughout the year, 
Like people think every, I think, I mean, this is changing a little bit, but every Metcon is seen as a max out effort. Yeah. Right. And that's where like, you can't just be doing that all the time, but be, because it's, you know, there's so many variables in a Metcon, there can be so many different things that you can put together. Maybe it's not as apparent that you're really just stressing the same thing all the time and not recovering. And I think that's where the top athletes who almost don't have to stress about making it to regionals because they just have such, you know, great uh, abilities that that genetics uh, don't hurt. Yeah. That they know that they can make it. So they know that they can ease off a little bit because they're coming from like a position of power. Yeah. They're just so gifted in the sport so that they're doing this, right? They, they know how to pace and they know that they can crank it up to that like competitive level when needed. Mm-hmm. But when these athletes... Well, to them, it's just another workout in their training week. Almost. Yeah. It's, yeah. It, or, yep. And, and But when an athlete um, gauges their success by their way of maintaining open-like intensities before the open... Mm. and that competition intensity is there in training, then you're done. Because you can go through an open-style workout and perhaps work on transitions, even something as simple as where you're placing your jump rope, right? Like these are things that can maybe add to your score two weeks to a month out better than just doing the workout uh, at max intensity. In fact, I would argue that it would be a much wiser thing to do. Uh, looking back on open workouts and just see things like um, not just transitions, but uh, damper setting on the rower or um, knowing with what exercises your grip gives out so you can train uh, grip. Um, but we've been talking a lot about the open and, and we know Sobo uh, we, has to move on in not, in not too long. Um but before we wrap it up, Sobo, do you have any uh, final thoughts in terms of this comparison between concurrent training and the traditional form of periodization? Uh, we kind of got a little whole, bit into endurance we, there we, as well. Yeah, we, we're, and we're not quite yet there. We will be talking about endurance uh, certainly in the upcoming shows, um, but maybe just some wrapping uh, thoughts before we, before we leave. Well, I would like – um so i thought about doing a podcast and we've given our listeners some deliverables so we've we've kind of hit home the concurrent training in our sustainable model but for our our listeners out there i kind of want to give you something you can do so we always hear um and matt chan talked about it and i know rich froning talks about it and a bunch of 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 elite crossfitters talk about finding that red line and and being able to win at 80 percent so what I find that really helps you if you are worried about huge Metcons in, you know, work capacity is figure out your 80% of every lift. So what always helped me, and if I ever decide to get back into competitive again, is know what you can do in a fatigued state. So if you are worried about your pull-ups in a fatigued state, We'll go out and do a really hard row and fatigue yourself and then see how many pull-ups you can do or chest-to-bars you can do in a minute when you're tired. So then you know, okay, after four rounds of chest-to-bar pull-ups, I'm going to be able to do one every four seconds. So you know that's your red line. 
So if you can figure that out in every um, in every lift or every exercise, you know what that red line is or that 80% mark is, you can then change and adapt to that and hopefully use that as a marker. So, you know, you're, you're thinking, okay, my pull-ups are going to suck when I'm tired. How much time do I have to give myself on the pull-ups? And I think Zach, you can contest. Remember I had um, my boy Gio have my time and tell me exactly where I need to be at what point when I was doing the, the open, because I knew that if I could do so many pull-ups in 30 seconds, that would give me enough time because I knew that I was going to get tired. And when I got tired, I could only do one every four seconds. So if I knew if I pushed it on the double unders, you know, I'd have that time. So if you can figure out what that is and you can do it in every lift that you think is going to be in the open, just think you have thrusters, you have erging, you know, have, you know, chest, the bar, you have muscle ups, figure out what those are for you. And that will give you an idea of how well you can do those events. So you're like, Oh wait, I've never done chest to bar pull-ups and um, thrusters together. Well, if you know how to do a thruster in a fatigue state, you know your time for that. And you know what your chest to bar pull-ups in a fatigue state are, you know that. So then you can kind of extrapolate from that. So you know what, I could probably do this workout in seven minutes. So if you have those benchmarks that aren't your traditional benchmarks of, you know, what my Nancy score is and what my 16.4 is, but when I'm tired, how many pull-ups can I do in a minute? When I'm super fatigued, how long does it take me to do a handstand walk of 100 yards? And then if you can improve those without, you know, killing yourself, doing 9,000 muscle-ups, because no, no, you know, workout requires 9,000 muscle-ups, then you'll be, you'll be way better off to then in turn gauge yourself for the opener for any CrossFit competition. I just want – I was going to – I think people are going to think we hate muscle-ups because I feel like it's always the example we use for yeah, I, I like. I, I hope that one fan will go in, or maybe we will just edit the numbers associated with uh, in terms of just expressing what is kind of nonsensical yes. and, and super, like just not – but uh, nonsensical and just way too much is the number of reps that Sobo uh, Often prescribes for our excessive muscle-ups. It's been like a million or 9,000. <laughs> Um, but I think that's a great point. And, and in the weightlifting world, in the powerlifting world, and so, but you're kind of following, oh, by the way, baby Sobaliski's here. So yeah, yeah. A little, little Addy, if you can hear her, I now have her. So, um, just for the remainder of the podcast. So, uh, you know, before we kind of log off on this and really what we're talking about is ways in which you can use, uh, concurrent training to prepare for a meet without having to go through hell right to without overdoing and getting sick and injured um but for a weightlifter or a powerlifter to me this would reflect or at least successful training would reflect in making your openers right you you kind of know that minimum that you need to hit like no matter how rushed your warm-ups are no matter how delayed your warm-ups are no matter how crappy the warm-ups go in the back room you can you know what you can hit and uh similarly you can take the like the the whole uh season of the open and and kind of boil that down towards you know the six attempts that you need or the nine attempts you need in powerlifting it's a much more condensed version but you do have to play that long game and know all right well how can i start and gain momentum right You, you follow what i'm saying sobo yeah, so like I said, that eighty percent or whatever for for power lifters and Olympic lifters, I like to call it a cold max. 
you should have an, a weight that you are comfortable with, a pretty high weight that you know that you can walk into any gym in America on any day and hit that percentage or hit that weight. And that should technically be your opener for any lift. So I know I go in and I can clean and jerk 110 kilos. Like I know I can do that. That is easy for me. Boom. I hit it. It flew up today. Let's go up to one one fifteen. So you should you should have that number, that weight that you are dead confident in that you know you can hit. Yeah. And it's just it's funny because at at the end of course in some circumstances people are trying to make teams, international teams or break world records and you're doing some riskier things. But we are really touching on something that is important. Again, that is to kind of not bust your load before the race has even begun. You just need to make sure you're building momentum. If the first open workout doesn't go your way, don't repeat it five times. You have time <laughs> to build up. If you, if you miss your opener, don't go up five kilos. It sounds silly, but in both sports, we or in all of these sports, we see these things happen. Um, so just as you have longevity in your training or, or maybe have that macro mindset, you do want to take that macro mindset into these competitions. Uh, I, I think that's a really good point. Uh, and probably a good point to, no, I'm not proud of myself. I'm just I'm saying it's a good point. I'll probably remind some of my athletes who aren't listening to this or, or who don't get around to it. But uh, so in being mindful for your time, you know, we'll kind of wrap it up there. Hopefully this ties everything together well uh, in terms of uh, a traditional periodized plan versus a concurrent training plan and the characteristics of fitness inherent to strength. Uh, we'll definitely be getting into more cardiovascular training. Uh, we might even be bringing on involving uh, uh, different coaches and athletes, uh, but definitely uh, – Exciting stuff ahead in the new year. So if you've enjoyed, definitely leave that feedback. Tell a friend. If not, or if there are things you'd like us to, to take some more time with or go into more depth, uh, or even if you don't like it at all, just still leave that feedback. We definitely appreciate it. And thank you so much uh, for listening, guys. Bye. Thank you.